0: Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Monday, April 1st, 2019, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers series. In this talk, Pulitzer Prize-winning author Lawrence Wright speaks with Professor Philip Bobbitt about the political trajectory of the state of Texas.
1: Good evening. It's great to be here, and it's great to have uh, my friend and someone I greatly admire, Larry Wright, to join us. My wife grew up in Istanbul, and like many of those cosmopolitans, she doesn't really know how to drive. We were in Austin shortly after we'd married, and she needed something from the pharmacy. I wasn't there, so she got in the car and very bravely drove down to the campus, parked uh, in front of the pharmacy, and a young student came up to her and said, Ma'am, if you park that way, they'll tow you. You have to parallel park. And she said. I don't know how to parallel park. And so he asked for her keys and asked her to step onto the curb, and he very deftly parked the car, gave the keys back to her. She went in and then came back to the house. I was there by then, and she told me this story. And I said, uh, darling, Texans are like that. They're courteous, they're friendly and gallant. Uh, but if you do that in New York, you'll never see your car again. LAUGHTER We're happy to welcome a Texan who's also something of a New Yorker tonight. As you heard, Larry Wright is a novelist, playwright, the author of numerous screenplays, nine works of nonfiction, including The Looming Towers, as mentioned, which won the Pulitzer Prize. I want to begin, however, with his latest work, the one you came here tonight to hear discussed God Save Texas. I have to say, the first time I read it quickly, I thought it should read, God save us from Texas. (laughs) But there's a much more depth to his thesis than than, uh, just that. Larry writes that there is uh, something about Texas. He says, I think Texas has nurtured an immature political culture that has done terrible damage to the state and to the nation. What happens there tends to disproportionately affect the rest of the nation. Illinois, New Jersey may be more corrupt. Kansas and Louisiana more dysfunctional. But they don't bear responsibility of being the future. Now, this suggests to me that America's future, like the present in Texas, is one of partisan political polarization in which gerrymandered Tea Party former radio broadcasters impose a, an agenda on a population that actually is rather centrist and detest political stunts. Is that what you had in mind?
2: Well, first of all, thank you all uh, for coming. I'm, I'm surprised that New Yorkers are as interested in Texas as this. Um, and and you have reason to be concerned. Um, the uh, When I made that remark about an immature political culture. Uh, you know, I think that you know it's evident to people who live there that we have a lot of challenges. And at the same time, you know, we have an incredibly successful state economically. Uh, it's it's really a miracle in many respects, and I'm grateful for it. Uh, you know, Texas has been growing for decades. Uh, Oftentimes, the fastest-growing state, uh, you know, now we still people still tend to think of Texas as being rural, but three of the top ten uh, most densely populated cities are in Texas. And number 11 is Austin, where Philip and I live. Uh, and when I moved there in 1980, it was a little college town, you know, mainly... Uh, it was bureaucrats and teachers, right. the state capital and the university, and now you know uh, the the metropolitan area is approaching two million people. Uh, the unemployment rate is under three percent, and yet one hundred and fifty people move to Austin every day. I don't know how this you know this engine of economic activity continues, but it's not just Austin. All the cities in Texas are are welcoming immense numbers of immigrants, and it's changing the state. So, But if this trend continues, and it has continued for a long time, by the year 2050, Texas will be about the size of New York and California combined. And it's already the second largest state. Um, the It has 38 electoral votes right now. After the next census, it will probably gain four more. Uh, California is 40% larger. It has 55 electoral votes, but it hasn't had any new electoral votes since 2003, and it won't in this next census. And New York has been losing population and electoral votes almost since the Truman administration. Uh, now Florida has surpassed it in population. So, and just to add to these statistics, 10% of all the school children in America are Texans. So you, my hypothesis is that Texas is the future, and for better or worse. Uh, my goal in writing this uh, book, to some extent, was to try to nudge it toward the better column because I think Texans have been un- kind of unaware of the, the responsibility that we shoulder for the future. And, uh, and, for instance, we've been very neglectful of our education. And... Uh, you know, what fuels this tremendous dynamic job engine is skilled workers, and we've been stinting on that. Uh, We haven't been building the infrastructure that the cities need to support this immense challenge of uh, of overwhelming migration. So those things, if we address them uh, with the kind of seriousness that we need to, then I think it's a good thing that Texas is the future, But if we fail in that regard, Texas is still the future, but it's not as bright as one.
1: One of the many valuable things about this book is that it takes you almost like a travel log through Texas to show there isn't just a Texas. Sometimes I'll be uh, overseas or maybe here in New York and someone will say, you don't have a Texas accent. And I'll say, you don't know what an Austin accent sounds like. What they mean is I don't have a southern accent like the beautiful, lilting, musical accent you get in East Texas, and I don't have a twang like the sort of little tinier sounds you get out in West Texas. I have just kind of a bland, not very interesting Austin accent. I've just come in from Austin, uh, as have the rights. Uh, I came in yesterday. Before I left, uh, as I often do, I had lunch at Julio's, my favorite place, Admiral Inman, yeah. the former head of, of the National Security Agency. Julio's has changed a bit. When I first started going there, there were no tables, <laughs> and you stand in line. Usually, there were a couple of guys uh, just off a construction site with hard hats. The Chief Justice of the Texas Supreme Court and I used to have lunch there a lot. There'd be a policeman or two, and then there'd be three or four hippies smoking joints. It was just that kind of a place. Austin is that kind of a place. But I don't think that's, that's the future. If I read you right, Houston is more the model for what might be the future of this country. As, uh, as Larry was just giving you some of the statistics, they're pretty dazzling. Houston will soon overtake Chicago as the country's third largest metropolitan area. Almost all its growth has been Latino, African American, and Asian. Houston is now the single most ethnically diverse metropolitan area in the United States. It overwhelmingly supports sensible gun control measures, including background checks. It welcomes more refugees than any city in this country, including a significant number of Muslims. More than 40% of the Houston population is less than 24 years old and was born outside the United States. But Houston's future is as cloudy as the future of the country. And Larry Wright's wonderful friend, Mimi Schwartz, said, this place could either be London or Lagos.
0: <laughs>
1: so what do you think?
2: Well, let me start about Austin, because when you were talking, I thought about um, oftentimes, and sometimes happens in New York, when uh, people say, where are you from? And I say, I'm from Texas. And you get the look. And uh, <laughs> where from in Texas? Austin, oh, Austin, oh, it's forgivable in a way that being from Texas is not, you know, so, uh, and, that, and Philip paints a, a great picture of the way that Austin used to be, um, and it's always had the most absurd PR I don't know who cranked up this engine, but it's still going. People who don't know anything about Austin, never been there, have heard that it's cool, that you know, it's, you know, it's a hip place, it's dynamic, and it is those things, but it wasn't when the, the PR machine cranked up. It was just like the Julio's you yes. described. It was relaxed, uh, a little hungover. <laughs> and um, now, you know, and I think that what happened with Austin is that people heard about, oh, it's a it's, it's cool, it's got great music. And, and so they started moving to Austin, and because of they went the reason they went, Austin became more like that. So it actually became more like its image than it actually was before people arrived. So it's more Austin now, I argue, than it was in the past. Houston is a fascinating city. Um, the Houston is the energy capital of the world. And... Um, It's uh, And it got that way, oil, you know, I mean, Texas has changed the world because of its oil discoveries. And uh, and it began in 1901 uh, with the uh, Spindletop, which was uh, in, it was in a little hill outside of Beaumont, which is uh, just north of Houston. And uh, there was a gassy hill and kids would set it on fire sometimes. And uh, so, this disreputable con man, I guess con men are all, always disreputable, but so this was a con man, uh, decided he's going to drill and it was going to be a thousand feet and he'd find uh, uh, an oil well that would produce uh, 50 gallons a day. That was his goal. And this first gusher came up. Uh, It, you know, first of all, six tons of drilling pipe fly over the derrick, and it quiets down. And suddenly, there's this huge roar, and rocks fly, and then oil comes up 150 feet into the air. Nobody had ever seen anything like that. It was a first gusher, and um, they crept, you know, 100,000 gallons a day were flying into the air until they got it capped. It was more than all the oil produced in America in that one well. And Houston was reduced to billing itself as the gateway to Beaumont. (laughs) Now, to to understand Houston and how it got to be what it is, uh, Jesse Jones, this young entrepreneur, he was 33 years old. uh, Texas was very suspicious of, of John D. Rockefeller's Standard Oil. So they formed... Their own local entities. And, you know, Texaco was one, and uh, Humble, S-X, which became Exxon. Uh, and uh, Gulf. Gulf, right. And so these, you know, just those entities, think about how much wealth came out of that. Uh, and Jesse Jones built a skyscraper in downtown Houston and offered Texaco essentially free rent. So they moved to Houston. And so did the other. Oil companies and then Woodrow Wilson, when he was President, pushed a button on his desk that was supposedly tied to a cannon in Houston, and it blew off, and the Houston ship channel opened and that 's where the that 's why Texas became important the uh, oil business came to Texas, and Texas capitalized on it, and Houston was the capital of that and It was when I was growing up in Dallas, we always looked down on Houston it was a, a you know it was a real blue-collar town, a good place for barbecue and dances, but, you know, not, and it's still good for those things. But it's fascinating to see how it's changed, and how, you know, streets, you can start downtown Houston and drive out, and you will go through you know, same street. You'll move through a Salvadoran neighborhood, and then the then the street signs turn to Cantonese, and, and it's just an amazing transformation of a single American city. Part of its appeal, you know, we used to laugh at Houston because it had no zoning laws. This was probably the one thing that most people knew about Houston, is and that came about because in the 50s, uh, the city fathers decided that zoning was a communist plot. <laughs> and And the liberals began to realize, well, wait, if there's no zoning, then you can't keep people out of certain places. And so they supported the no zoning thing totally cynically, but it has had the effect of allowing development to, I mean, sometimes the development is totally nuts. You'll see a skyscraper in a neighborhood and a house made out of tin cans and a a strip joint next to a shopping mall and so on. But those are minor inconveniences compared to the fact that people have affordable housing in Houston. And housing in Houston is only is about sixty percent of the cost of what it would be in L.A., which is its kind of sister city on the West Coast, and that's part of the reason people come uh, to Houston, uh, despite its dreadful weather, and uh, and you know it has climbed its way into being an art center. Uh, and I, I don't know. It's, it's the in many ways you would have to say that Houston is the growth center of the future of America. Mm-hmm. When you were saying
1: people ask you where you were from, I couldn't suppress this memory. My wife took our six-year-old son for his last birthday to Paris for his. Birthday.
2: <laughs> I know this story.
1: <laughs> we were we were in London for the summer, and so she took the Eurostar and went down. They were in the Luxembourg Gardens, and somehow my son, whose name is Pasha, found a little French girl who spoke English. And they were chatting, and my wife wanted to find out what they were saying. So she sort of hid behind a bush and eavesdropped. This is what they were saying. The little French girl said, Where are you from? Pasha said, Texas. Though of course he's going to school here in New York. <laughs> He'd only been to Texas on holidays. She said, Oh, does that mean you're a cowboy? He said, "Yes, and I have many horses."
2: <laughs> this this line is gonna work thing. for him, I can tell you. <laughs>
1: well, Texas has many legends, but the facts are pretty unique in themselves. Uh, as right ago, Texas, I'm gonna
2: break in uh, oh, do, because please. I just the horse thing triggered uh, a thought for me because you know what he is doing is perpetrating the great. Texas myth. Hmm. You know, he's six years old. It's already in there. And, you know, and that it's useful. Uh, So, the... But I... Worked in the Luxembourg Garden. I'm telling you. uh, Roberta and I used to teach English at the American University in Cairo. And I would sometimes go out um, horseback riding out at the pyramids. They had a stable just below the the Sphinx. And... um, the stable owner found out I was from Texas. Uh, I probably told him, and uh, <laughs> so they started calling me Texas. And you know, note that you've probably never been called New York, <laughs> right? Or you know, no one gets called New Jersey or Illinois or Nebraska, but Texas—it happens. And uh, so uh, one day I went out to the stable and. Uh, The owner says, oh, Texas, we've got a horse for you. I grew up in Dallas. I am not a cowboy like Pasha. And two guys bring out this stallion, who's pawing the air, his nostrils are pumping. It scared the crap out of me. But I was Texas, and so I had to get on the horse, and he took me halfway to Libya. Uh, But I felt I was literally astride the great Texas myth. And, it, you know, there's, a, a, there's an advantage in it, you know, because people project onto you qualities that you may not actually have, but you might aspire to, and, uh, and, and it, but it's like a, a shadow that's a little bigger than you are, and you can try to step into it.
1: You know, we could go on this way all night long. When I was in college,
2: <laughs>
1: I was uh, in charge of the disciplinary committees for the Certain part of the student body, and some idiot had decided he didn't want to keep his dog anymore. So he had tied the dog to a stake and shot it. But he didn't kill the dog, he just wounded him. And so the dog pulled up the stake, began running across the campus with this nincompoop firing at him. <laughs> and this came before me. Wait a minute, which college is this? I think I'll just leave it on. Un- <laughs> <laughs>
2: <Yeah, yeah. laughs>
1: So I talked to this this uh, Cretan, and I said, uh, "I'm not concerned about you're your endangering the undergraduates, but I feel very strongly about dogs." <laughs> I was just kidding, uh, and I said, uh, "So here are the penalties. You know, you can't do this, you can't do that, and you're on probation, and, and so forth." And then I said, uh, "Furthermore, if I ever hear about you mistreating an animal, I'll shoot you." I've rarely shot anything in my life. But I said, and you know, I'm from Texas. <laughs> I was
2: just terrified, to shot I used the same line once about uh, when somebody asked me about, you know, I'd written about Scientology, and, you know, aren't you afraid of them coming after you? And I said, well, I'm from Texas.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, back to the more factual basis for <laughs> this talk. Texas comprises an area, as every Texan knows, larger than France, In its history, it's been ruled by two great European colonial powers. It's been a part or the whole of three North American countries. The next time any of you is in St. James's, going to Berry Brothers and Rudd to get your claret, if you'll pause just at the alleyway before you get to Berry Brothers, you'll see a plaque on the wall that commemorates the site of the Texas embassy to the court of St. James for the nine years we were an independent country. Larry Wright says... Texas enjoys the singular blessing that every distinct culture must have, a sense of its own apartness. It's in the sound of our voices, flavors of our food, the rhythms of our music. And that takes me to a discussion that Wright has of the three levels of culture, level one, two, and three. I thought you might just say a bit about that. It's a very intriguing idea.
2: Well, I don't know if this applies to other cultures in Texas, but um, you know, I'm qualified to talk about this because I minored in anthropology and I've spent my life uh, doing field work among Texans. So um, (laughs) level one is the primitive level. And in Texas that is boots and hats and belt buckles and barbecue and blue bonnets, all the bees. Uh, the, these are things that everybody recognizes are Texan. And Texans recognize this is you know, our, where we start. And um, now that's, I spent my whole life in Texas in level two. And that's when money arrives. And when money arrives, uh, people, in the, at least in Texas, in this kind of primitive environment, they begin to wonder how to spend it. And also, what do other cultures do, uh, and how do they use their prosperity? And that's, this is the period of time when you start art museums, you send your kids away to college, uh, you you learn languages, uh, you educate yourself, uh, you bring in architects, architects, uh, you know, to build your, as Ross Perot was saying, world-class cities. Uh, world-class is a real level two phrase. And, uh, but all the cities begin to look like franchises of other American cities. So they become showplaces for other people's ideas. But that's all about level two. It's a, it's a stage of learning. It's also a stage of great neurosis and shame for your, you know, the level that you came from. And um, then One day when I was eating a rabbit enchilada in Cafe Annie in in Houston, I realized there was a level three. (laughs) And that is when you have gone through that whole period of education and sophistication and learning, and then you turn back to your roots and try to find what's there for you and how you can connect to it. And, and, And this is when cultures begin to become transforming and have the possibility of becoming great cultures. And there are, there are moments of greatness, I think, in Texas culture. Uh, I, you know One of the things that first came to mind, Alvin Ailey was you know, a choreographer uh, who came from a, a little fly-spec Texas town called Rogers, and he did this dance called Revelation. And it's all about growing up in that little Baptist church, and uh, you know, it connects, in my mind, to Beyonce's Lemonade album, which is very similar in some respects. In her going back to Houston and, and her, you know, the country western sounds that are in there, and uh, the and and the and the church sounds. She was in a little Methodist church in in Houston. And uh, Larry McMurtry, when he wrote <laughs> Leaving, well, when I think Leaving Cheyenne was the first of those books that I really connected with, you know. Rick Rick Linklater when he did Boyhood. All of these are moments where you see Texans looking at the culture that they came from and going back to the stuff that made it distinctly Texan and finding a way of transforming that. And it's irregular, it's not consistent, but there are moments when I think that we can achieve that kind of... And no culture becomes a great culture by imitating others. So I think that's the whole reason Level 3 has to proceed.
1: As you can see from this, there are many wonderful portraits in this in this book, Uh a lot of the book is is a single portrait of Steve Harrigan, the marvelous uh, the novelist. The poet and novelist Ben Markovitz calls him the Virgil of this book, which is apt in some ways. That the idea of going through layers of hell, I think, is probably not what <laughs> Markovitz had in mind. I wish that Larry had included John Henry Falk in his uh, discussion of Kay Northcote and uh, particularly mm-hmm. Molly Ivins. Molly wants said to me, I'm not sure whether to believe this or not, she said that when she was a young reporter, she was in the press gallery of the Texas House, when a member of the House went to the podium and said, if we pass this bill, it will open up a whole box of Pandoras.
2: (laughs) 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 Yeah, we we miss Molly. She and Ann Richards had uh, defined a kind of woman that was... Really special, uh, not a unique figure, but very special to Texas, and uh, and I really miss him. I, the, uh, there was a sometimes you tell stories about Texas politics, which uh, are sometimes hard to believe. But we had a guy named uh, this gets back to Ann, but. Um, name Named uh, something Martin, Pete, Pete Martin, I think his name was, and he was uh, elected to the Texas House of Representatives. And his election was his reelection was in question, and uh, so he had his brother shoot him. Um, he that's right. He, uh, he, he he was in he was staying in a trailer in a in a Pecan Grove trailer park. And, you know, he stuck his hand up out of the window, and his, his brother shot him with a shotgun. And, uh, and this was all to get the sympathy vote, which might have made the margin of difference. And he said that it was the mafia, which, you know, really prevalent in Austin. And uh, so anyway, the, the Texas Rangers pretty soon figured out, come on. <laughs> so Martin went on a... He hid out in, in his mother's house, he was, and they found him inside the stereo cabinet And Molly's comment was, he always did want to be the speaker.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There are wonderful ports. The one I would uh, dissent from, as Larry might have expected, is his caro esque picture of LBJ. At least as as I uh, knew uh, President Johnson, I think a different rendering would have furthered. Uh, Larry Wright's depiction of Texas as a kind of fractal of a national composition, uh, an historic foundation from which the future is made out of the old rock, the past. I don't want to belabor this. There's too much I agree with in the book. But I will just give you this one remark of Hubert Humphreys as a possible corrective. Talking about Johnson, he said, He was an all-American president. He was really the history of this country with all the turmoil, the bombast, the sentiments, passions. It was all there. And if you like politics, it was like being at the foot of a giant. And then uh, Humphrey said something that might be transposed to Texas itself, although he was talking about Johnson. He said, just keep in mind that Lyndon had all the weaknesses and the strengths of a big man. He loved women. He loved to take a drink. He loved a good story. He was a patriarch of absolutely unbelievable dimensions. He wanted to do good. He was a soft-hearted guy with a deep veneer. I want to turn now to the problem
2: that journalists and... Well, can I say something? Since I don't disagree with you on, on your Uncle Lyndon. Um I I I think he was a complicated figure for me and for a lot of Texans. Um I remember the first time I ever heard my own voice uh was in Spanish language class on a tape recorder. You know, that was you know kind of new. And um and I sounded like LBJ ordering a plate of tacos and I thought, <laughs> I'm gonna drop that. And uh and, and there was a lot of regional shame. Um being connected you know, and part of it was tied in to the South you know that l b j was you know Texas is a part of the South and is a part of the west uh and he was a bridge figure, which made him an interesting figure but the um the south uh he had been allied with the you know the resistance the confederate resistance, and I think as a kind of progressive kid. I wasn't really that progressive. Uh, I, I got the sense that Lyndon was hated. And but there were stereotypes about Texas that applied to me too. And so when I identified with him, it was sometimes with a little bit of embarrassment. And because of the regionalism that I, you know, my, my I adopted other people's prejudices about Texas. I was a self-hating Texan. <laughs> and and he embodied that. And I wish I'd been able to see him more clearly. Um, I don't, you know, I didn't agree with him about Vietnam, and I was, uh, I was a conscientious objector during that period. Uh, now, who I did come to know and love was Ladybird. And she was a darling woman. And, and it was in part because of you that I got to know her. Uh, and in fact, if you don't mind my telling... Please. Uh, I was at a dinner uh, at Phillips. He sometimes has known been known to give birthday parties for Shakespeare. That's the kind of guy he is, and so uh, and you're expected to come with your you know monologues and uh, anyway we were, had drinks in the music room and then uh, we were seated around the table and and Phillips seated me next to uh, Ladybird and. Um, and she was 90, I think. And uh, she asked me to pass the salt, and it was right in front of her. So I just, you know, and she said, oh, you know, I can hardly see anymore. My eyes, I have that macular degeneration. And just yeah, sometimes it's embarrassing. Uh, just earlier this evening, I was we were having cocktails in the music room, and I was... Conversing with this gentleman, and I was being my most charming self, and he was so unresponsive. And finally, I realized I was talking to a bust of Shakespeare. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to tell one other ladybird story. I'm sorry, since they they like that one. She started the Wildflower Center. And uh, this was at a time when wildflowers were not even noticed, really, uh, for the most part. But she, she decided this is something she was going to devote her, her, her later years to. She started when she was 70 years old, I believe. And uh, wildflowers hadn't been cultivated. They were wildflowers. So, uh, Very difficult to propagate. Very difficult. And so she herself was an MS, a scout And so she's driving along central Texas, along one of the hillsides. She sees a whole hillside of pink evening primrose. And she stops the car because there's a kid on a tractor mowing it down. And she runs out and jumps in front of the tractor and says, stop! So you're a 14-year-old kid on the tractor, and you see the first lady (laughs) standing in front of you. And she leaves the pasture until the seeds were able to be harvested. And I just think that's you know one of those ladybird-isms that there aren't very many people like that. Well, her eyesight
1: did deter rather badly, and, and uh, we would go for drives around the ranch, which she knew intimately. And at one point, one day, we were driving, we made it sort of into a bend, and I said, and I was describing the things, I saw, and I said, I see a small lake. It's, it's larger than a pond. I didn't know you had a lake up there. She said, we don't. That's not a lake. I said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure it is. I can see the, the water shimmering. She said, we don't have a lake here. Not in this part of the ranch. She said, that's a field of bluebottles," And it was. Uh-huh. Uh, I want to make just a couple more points before we go to uh, questions. One is quite an, I think, an interesting observation uh, you attribute to Bainbridge also that the condescension that some non Texans have towards the state mirrors the traditional old world stance towards America itself. My dear friend Pat York, who's married to this very famous British actor, calls the British attitude condescending envy. <laughs> <laughs> The faults of Texans, as they are recorded by most visitors, are scarcely unfamiliar, for they are the same ones that Europeans have been taxing us with for 300 years. Boastfulness, cultural underdevelopment, materialism, and all the rest. In British eyes, America was a rude, brash, bumptious, and not very civilized country. Conceited, self-important, often arrogant, and above all, tiresome. What do you think of this idea that this is the way Europeans think of Americans and the way people in America think about Texas? And I don't where does this go? Is something to this idea?
2: Yeah, I do. I think that uh, older cultures tend to look down on newer ones, especially energetic ones with a lot of money, and uh, because they form challenges. And uh, this uh, this concept of... Texas being a usurper just like the new world was uh-huh. to Europe. I think that you know the statistics that I laid out earlier probably you know those are those are things that people fear because it means that the the standing of the older cultures will be diminished and overthrown. Um it's it's inevitable that cultures change and you know Texas is so ascendant uh, that sometimes it just takes my breath away when you're in it, Uh, you'd have to come down and actually visibly see the traffic that we're dealing with and the infrastructure problems that we have in the airports and so on to understand the challenge that's facing us.
1: I want to close with just a couple more questions. One is about a metaphor that Larry Wright uses to describe different parts of the Texas psyche. He talks about an AM Texas and an FM Texas. What did you mean by that?
2: Well, you can drive through Texas and be in two different states at the same time. And AM Texas is pretty much what many people think of Texas who are not in Texas. And it is, you know... Talk radio—it's Rush, it's Laura, it's the evangelical stuff. It's—it you know—it just sounds like all the stereotypes. Even though AM radio, you can find it anywhere, but it's, its in Texas, it's very concentrated and has a lot of political pull. Like our lieutenant governor, Dan Patrick, probably the most conservative uh, figure ever elected to office in Texas, uh, was a shock jock in in uh, in Houston. And uh, he's, uh, he it was, people said it was like Rush Limbaugh running for office. So it has a very powerful political constituency. What a lot of people don't realize is you can switch the band and go to the FM Texas, and you're in the kingdom of NPR, just like you are here. You know, and it's it's where you know it's, it's progressive, it's erudite, uh, it's and and the music is uh, is. Totally, you know, there's there is a little bit of country music on FM, but not. It's hard to find. So, those are two Texas, and they exist on top of each other. Uh, it's interesting to me that, you know, one of the joys of Texas, I think, is being able to pass through those layers. And get the juice of some of the you know like I'm in a band, and so I spend a lot of time dealing with you know rockabillies and and uh, uh, you know, buddy Holly music and Roy Orbison and all that It's all what you would think of as a sort of hickey Texas, but it's so much fun, and uh you know the the, the barbecue and all that it's all a part of what makes it a pleasure to be in Texas
1: well I read that metaphor, which I think is quite telling. In a book about the future, I thought instead about uh, Satellite Music Network. As a metaphor, not just for Texas, but for our future, this wonderfully inclusive network that plays all sorts of music, more music than you could ever get in a radio station, and yet plays it just singularly to just the person listening. No sense of locality, no sense of local culture, uh, you get exactly what you want, and that may be part of
2: the problem. I've, I have a little problem with the, the idea of uh, uprooting the, the locality of the stations uh, because, you know, when you are listening to a local station, you're in some way in touch with your community. And uh, I think that satellite TV, radio, as much as it offers, also has the internet effect of creating isolation chambers. Absolutely.
1: I think we have just about um, about fifteen minutes for questions, and we've given me some questions for cards, so I'll just run through a few of these. One of them is, what kind of Democratic presidential candidate can win in the new demographics of Texas, i.e., old, young, brown, female, etc.?
2: Well. Texas is turning purple, and it's inevitable. Um, you know, it, when I was a young man, Texas was blue, and California was red. Uh, Texas produced Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society. Sam Rayburn. Yeah. Uh, Ronald Reagan came out of California, along with the, the modern conservative revolution. So these are it's fascinating to me, these two states... Uh, the most important states in America have totally different models, and I think of them being like strands of DNA. They're in a relationship. They revolve around each other, but they never coincide. And it's, I think part of this power of the United States is that states like ours can have such differing models. The... Uh, What was the rest of that question?
1: Just what sort of profile a successful Democratic candidate would have to have to win in Texas?
2: Well, if you had um, a centrist Democrat, I think that a lot of Texans are ready to make a move out of the Republican Party. Uh, And it's not just Texas. I think it's true in Arizona, Georgia, and Florida as well. However, if you have a very leftist uh, figure then those potential voters will flee back into the Republican Party. But from a Texas point of view, what's essential in the next election, 2020, is that that's when the census is taken, and then there'll be uh, redistricting. And we live in Austin. If you drew a line from Washington, D.C. to San Francisco, Austin is probably the most liberal city in the entire southern tier of the United States. I sometimes feel like I live in Rome, surrounded by the Goths, you know. And <laughs> we have, thanks to gerrymandering, five congressmen, four of them Republicans. That's what's happened it's to... A, it's really just disgraceful. It is. My, my congressman lives in 250 miles away. He's a car dealer uh, west of Fort Worth. And he rarely comes to Austin because he doesn't feel very welcome. Uh, But it's it's you know they've carved up our state and into entities that don't really represent the true political feelings of the state. So if we get our four additional uh, Congress uh, congressional seats, and if the Texas House. Uh, then redistricts uh, based on the census, the Texas delegation is going to look entirely different. No matter who gets elected president, that's going to, that process is going to be replicated in many other states around the country. And I think that is something we need to keep our eye on as well. Just to give you a particularly
1: awful example, the 10th district, which was the district that Lyndon Johnson represented as a congressman, and then Homer Thornberry, Judge Thornberry, then Jake Pickle, now Lloyd Doggett, now runs from Austin almost all the way to the border. Just a tiny sliver.
2: Yeah. Just That's the Democrat uh, the, seat. That, the Democrat. When, uh, when they carved that seat out, they took East Austin, which is largely Hispanic, and ran it down to East San Antonio, and then far down as they go, scooping up every Hispanic that they could find to cram into that district.
1: Another question is, given its large economy and population, do you believe there is a potential for a credible, substantial Texas independence movement?
2: No, I don't. I, you know, I read an interesting poll, uh, the secession Feeling is common to states all over the United California? States. Yeah, and yeah, the California is the one that's talking about it now. But uh, there's always been this talk, and you know, it was amplified by Russian bots. You know, there was a, a Texas secession website entirely run by the, and it had more hits on it than the, the Democrat and Republican party uh, sites, and so they they achieved a lot of you know, haranguing, stirring people up, but uh, we're not going to secede. The one thing that is, that's always puzzled me a little bit, because of, you're the lawyer here, so we can discuss whether this is actually possible, but when Texas entered the union, it was with the understanding that we could split up into five entities. uh, With the consent of Congress. 10 senators. <laughs> you know, just imagine. And, you know, uh, what keeps Texas together is a very, you know, diverse state. And Steve, my friend, the Virgil, uh, says, you know, Texas is where everything peters out. You know, the South, you know, the Great Plains, the West, Mexico, they all come to Texas to die. <laughs> and yet it, there's a... And, and, and so if you're in East Texas, you're really a part of the South, and if you're in West Texas, there's no question where you are. Uh, and those are very different entities, but there's some kind of internal coherence that holds the state together despite that, and that has always puzzled me. Steve Harrigan is an
1: immensely uh, imaginative, uh, lyrical writer, so I don't doubt that he got that out of his own imagination. But when I first heard that phrase, It was attributed to Eamon Carter. Eamon Carter was a big booster of Fort Worth and was responsible for the DFW airport being located where it was. He loved Fort Worth and he hated Dallas. And he's supposed to have said, Fort Worth is where the West begins. And Dallas, well, Dallas is where the East peters out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) How will immigration affect Texas's political valence? More red? or trending blue?
2: Well, my family was a part of a great surge of immigration into Texas. Uh, we moved there, uh, we moved to Dallas in 1960. My dad was, uh, had been a veteran, and like a lot of veterans, he was an Eisenhower Republican. And Dallas was the first city in Texas to turn red. Um, and we're going through something like that now. Uh, people are moving to Texas from different political traditions. They, they don't have the same allegiances and understandings and prejudices uh, that the established uh, political figures have in the state. And I think it was quite shocking to the political hierarchy in the state how close some of them came to being defeated. Now, we haven't elected a Democrat statewide in 25 years. Uh, and in California, for instance, doesn't have a single statewide elected Republican. That's how opposed we are. But it was a close call. And had Beto O'Rourke had you know any kind of support on the ticket, suppose one of the Castro twins had announced for governor, for instance, mm-hmm. I think Beto would have been elected. And it's not it wouldn't be out of the question to think that one of the Castro brothers would be governor or lieutenant governor had they had the f- foresight to step forward and get into that race. But Beto carried that all by himself and came uh, within... Of course, he was running against a candidate who's not universally loved. Um,
1: <laughs>
2: so. Well, an interesting t- uh,
1: statistic from that race is that if you take away the votes of those persons who have come into the state in the last five years, immigrants, O'Rourke wins and wins handily. Really? That's yeah. fascinating. The People talk a lot about immigration from... Uh, Central America, but the real immigration in Texas is coming from America, from the Midwest, from the West. And California. And and it is uh, a migration of conservatives.
2: Uh, Well, there's actually an organization in Dallas called Move Conserve or something like that that is soliciting people from California to move to Texas.
1: A question we ask is, has the open carry law been a big issue in Texas?
2: Uh, All right, I'm going to pull out my concealed weapons license. (laughs) I don't think you've seen these in New York. Um, Here it is. It looks just like a driver's license. Um, The reason I have one, I don't have a gun, is that it allows me to go into the state capitol without being scanned. So I can go past all the tourists, I just say, I might have a gun, and... uh, (laughs) Oh, come on in! And so, <laughs> uh, and yet, I have—I can't remember ever seeing anybody walking around packing a sidearm. Now, the so it's—it's it's weird. We have a, a culture of people. We've had some terrible tragedies. You could say that. The school shooting really began in Austin with the UT you know, nineteen sixty. I was on campus that Six was it sixty six? Uh, something like that. Sixty six, I think. And uh, one of my classmates was the first person shot. She was pregnant, and he shot her baby. Hmm. Um, and you know that was a a day when, in many ways, the world changed. And uh, back then there weren't any like campus policemen. There was no SWAT team and all that. But all of that kind of started in Texas, and we've had you know Sunderland Springs. We've had so many tragedies. One of those tragedies was um, at Luby's, um, I'm going to say it was 12 or 15 years ago, and uh, this woman uh, went with her parents uh, to have lunch, and. She left her gun in the glove compartment because she was a chiropractor and she was afraid she might lose her license or something like that. And then, shortly after they got seated, a pickup truck drove through the plate glass windows. And people thought that, you know, he had car trouble or something. But he got out and he started shooting people. Yeah. And uh, this woman, her name is Arlene something, I don't remember. I don't remember. Uh, she's Thought she had her gun in her purse, and then she remembered she left it in the car. And uh, both of her parents were killed. Uh, and she got elected to the Texas House of Representatives and passed the first uh, carry law. And so there's another side of the argument that plays out uh, in that situation. George Bush signed it into law. But one day, Steve Harrigan and, and his wife and, and Roberta and I were in the George W. Bush Library in uh, Dallas, which had just opened. And they were, at that time, they were debating in the Texas legislature about guns on campus. And this was SMU, which was private. But um, we were standing in this big marble atrium, and somebody yelled, active shooter! And we all did exactly the wrong thing. We just hit the ground. And, uh, in fact, a guy, an elderly man in front of me, I saw his head bouncing on the, on the marble. And, um, and, of course, we were just all totally exposed. And, uh, you know, and Roberta was between two women who were praying into her ears. And, you know, there was, there was a lot of stuff going on. And I thought, wait a minute you're an investigative reporter. <laughs> what are you doing lying here on the ground? So I got up and went over to the cops and uh, uh, you know, tried to find out what's going on. What happened was that I had seen this little black kid come in um, a few minutes before, and it turned out that he and his family had been to the Texas Ranger Museum, and they bought a toy gun. And he had to go into the bathroom. His dad was outside on the park bench smoking a cigarette, and um, and so the boy gave the toy gun to his dad. And then it's a black man with a gun. And now all toy guns have that little orange tip, so they're very clearly toys. But the cops came out. They manifested when I was talking to automatic weapons. They put him on the ground. They cuffed him, and uh, he was in custody for hours. But that's guns scare people even in Texas, and you know the whole argument about you know guns on campus. They passed that law and they they signed it and they implemented it on the very day that you know it commemorated Charles Whitman's 50th anniversary.
1: We just lost in Texas a, a wonderful man who was the president of the university, Bill Powers. And he was a uh, much admired administrator all across the United States. He was the president of the American Association of Universities, which is a group of public universities. Uh, He was forced out. And I think one reason was his uh, stand against allowing students or others to bring firearms into uh, into college uh, uh, classrooms.
2: I... Mentioned there's a there's a you may have seen this iconic figure of a cannon, and uh, over it says "Come, Come and, and take it." it. Gonzalez, yeah, yeah it, a, it commemorates the opening of the Texas Revolution. But you know, Ted Cruz wore it on the uh, pin of it uh, on the floor of the Senate when he was uh, arguing against uh, health care. And um, anyway, after that, uh, the students at the University of Texas. Um, started passing around these giant dildos. Um, some of them look really painful. I mean, they, but they, Then some of them played, placed them under the live oak trees and looked like a stand of mushrooms. Uh, but they were walking around and it, and it said, take it and come. Uh, so it posed a posed a challenge to the administrators because, you know, there is an obscenity thing and they decided less Johnson touched the (laughs) money.
1: The last point I want to ask uh, Larry Wright about is just about journalism itself. Some of our greatest writers have been journalists, uh, our greatest novelists, short story writers, Dickens, uh, Hemingway. Oh, Henry was from Austin, Texas. We put him in prison. Well, he was, <laughs> he was a group. not without cause. <laughs> yeah. He was a very mild-mannered uh, bank uh, teller. <laughs> uh, anyway, the craft of, of journalism and the craft of a novelist uh, have much in common. I, I know more about intelligence uh, collection analysis than I do about journalism. And so it's always seemed to me that that craft had a lot to do with, uh, investigative journalism and the reportage of facts. I wonder how a a writer with Larry Wright's enormous gifts decides on what to write and,
2: uh, and what's next. Well, I'm trying to decide that right now. I'm just finishing up a couple of projects and looking for something new. Um, I always... I made a resolution when I was uh, much younger that I would only do things that were really important or really fun. Because, you know, I like to do things that are important, but I don't want to miss out on having a good time. So um, with those things in mind, I always look around at, you know, things that are significant or appealing. And then if I... If I find a story, let's say it was Scientology, for instance, um I look for what I call a donkey, which sounds like a demeaning term, but a donkey is not a you know it's not like a magazine profile, some glamorous person. A donkey is a useful beast of burden who can carry the reader into a world that he's never been and carry a lot of information on his back and so when um I decided I wanted to write about Scientology. It took years for the donkey to make his appearance. Um, but w- w- then Paul Haggis, two-time Academy Award-winning writer-director, dropped out after 34 years. And, um, and I was working on something else, so I let a little time go by. And he was very quiet about it. Uh, and so finally I, I got his business manager's number and I called him up, and I said, hello, this is Lawrence Wright with The New Yorker. I'd like to talk to you about, uh, talk to your client, uh, Paul Haggis, about his experience in Scientology. Are you kidding? We would never do that. Get the fuck off my phone. <laughs> the entire conversation. And uh, the next day, I uh, got Paul Haggis' email address, and I, I wrote him, and I said, you know, I had a conversation with your business manager. LAUGHTER uh, and he said, this wasn't the best time, uh, but <laughs> if there's ever a time you'd like to tell the story of your intellectual and spiritual development, uh, I'd be honored to tell it. And uh, 20 minutes later, very flattered, let's have lunch on Tuesday. So he was cutting a movie up here, and I came up, and um, the you know we spoke for about an hour, and then he wanted to have a cigarette, so we went out on the sidewalk, and I said, you know, of course this is about your experience in Scientology, and his eyes got a little wide. And it was like nine months later before he admitted that he had no idea it was going to be about Scientology. He didn't want to think about it. He was just so flattered the New Yorker was going to write a profile of him. <laughs> and But he was a very courageous donkey. And so you find that sing, signal figure, and then you... Um, then you go out and talk to everybody else. And I I always think of journalism having two axes. One, the first rule of journalism is to talk to everybody. And of course, not everybody will talk to you, but how do you find everybody? And, you know, I take a... I do legal pads, and, uh, you know, you have 25 lines on a legal pad, and you write down the names of people that you know are involved. And then when you get there telephone numbers, you write them down on that little inch and a half margin on the side. And then when you talk to them, highlight each of them so you know. But when you go talk to them, I come to talk to you, and I know your name's already on my list. And then I say, well, Philip, who else should I talk to? And you give me names I haven't heard of before. And I write them down. I go talk to them. And then same question. And then the roots go deeper and deeper into the soil. And eventually you populate the universe of the story. And you try to go talk to everybody. and But not everybody is that interesting or candid or uh, willing to talk. And uh, But there are some people who are really good. And then you go back to them again and again. And so that's the the vertical axis. The horizontal axis gives you an oversight, a kind of consensus of what happened. But the vertical axis I see as being a key to understanding. And I tend to exploit it when I'm actually writing. And, uh, you know, if it's, you know, uh, like if I'm writing about Osama bin Laden and, uh, you know... I had a few personal questions. I called his brother-in-law. Did Sama sleep in a bed? Uh, Did he put on perfume? I mean, these are things that I would never have thought to ask while I was there, but while I'm writing and composing and trying to create an image in the reader's mind, I have to go back to those other kinds of sources who are close in and willing to talk and willing to be honest. Larry Wright will be signing uh,
1: copies of this book uh, outside when we close here. I just want to thank all of you for coming. Of course, I want to thank
0: Lawrence Wright. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at nyhistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.